This is a special edition of the Sufi Reverberations podcast. Rather than presenting a story, poem, essay, and a musical interlude, the following program gives expression to one episode of a multi-part editorial entitled The Essence of the Problem That Lies Before Us. This commentary is a critical reflection on the nature of the problem which underlies the existential circumstances in which we are entangled. The discussion throughout the present commentary has focused exclusively on a. the nature of various aspects of the framework to which the amended constitution gives expression, and b. the character of some of the rights, powers, entitlements, or responsibilities that are entailed by the kind of constitutional framework that is being engaged. The working premise of the current commentary is this. Given that such a constitutional structure exists, then what are some of the possible implications inherent in that arrangement? With respect to both A and B, special attention has been directed towards the nature of the role that the initial statement concerning religion in the First Amendment might play in various constitutional considerations. In addition, special attention has also been directed towards considering the possible relevance that the Ninth and Tenth Amendments, as well as Article 4, Section 4, might have when trying to critically reflect upon the nature and potential of the United States Constitution. If one believes that the U.S. Constitution has the kind of heuristic value that is capable of meeting the needs of people in America, then there are some features of that Constitution which one needs to take into consideration that, although seemingly largely misunderstood for 233 years, nonetheless entail qualities and principles that appear to go to the heart of whatever heuristic value the Constitution might have at the present time. And some of those possibilities have been explored during the present commentary. However, if one does not believe that the U.S. Constitution is capable of adequately resolving current exigencies, then some other arrangement will have to be considered. If one were to try to reduce the thrust of the present commentary down to its simplest formulation, one might say something along the following lines. From very early on during the constitutional history of America, perhaps even from the very beginning, people, both government officials and otherwise, have failed to come to terms with the depth, breadth, and rigorous nature of the dynamic potential that the opening statement of the First Amendment has for what can and cannot be done by government officials, and as well, government officials and others also appear to have misunderstood the rich potential that is inherent in Article 4, Section 4 of the Constitution, along with the Ninth and Tenth Amendments to that Constitution, for placing constraints on what governments can and can't do, which go far beyond what most observers might have supposed to be possible. The individuals in Congress that discussed, debated, constructed, and then voted on the components of the First Amendment failed to define what was meant by the notion of religion. 
Nonetheless, most, if not all, of those individuals were aware that the idea of religion extended to a wide variety of possibilities, and therefore, to be properly understood, that term had to be considered in its most generic, broadest sense. Furthermore, many, if not most individuals in the different states who subsequently voted to ratify the First Amendment also were aware that the idea of religion could encompass considerable conceptual latitude. Religion wasn't restricted to churches, temples, synagogues, or other kinds of buildings and institutions. In addition, religion in all manner of forms, rituals, observances, and peculiarities existed among native people as well as was understood to be present in ancient Roman, Norse, Greek, African, and pagan societies. Religion might involve gods, a god, or no god at all. Religion, in its most generic sense, gave expression to a person and or society's search for and application of the truth concerning the nature of his, her, or their relationship with reality or being or the universe. Moreover, whatever the nature of that relationship might be, it was considered to be sacred, essential, fundamental, and necessary existential ground that entailed binding responsibilities which shaped, colored, and oriented how one engaged life or how one thought that life should be engaged. People might have supposed that politics, economics, science, law, education, and philosophy were capable of being compartmentalized and treated as something other than religion. However, those topics were all part of the same underlying search for the truth concerning the nature of one's relationship with reality. Furthermore, whatever the political, economic, philosophical, legal, or scientific nature of that relationship might be, such a relationship gave expression to what the proponents of those views considered to be sacred, essential, fundamental, and necessary existential ground that entailed binding responsibilities. The sacred ground of understanding shaped, colored, and oriented how one engaged life or how one thought that life should be engaged. In other words, whether the aforementioned individuals, sometimes known as framers, were or were not prepared to admit as much, their political, economic, philosophical, legal, and scientific activities were all expressions of religious dynamics of one kind or another. The beliefs, values, principles, duties, obligations, observances, and rituals that were entailed by those forms of engaging existence were nothing other than manifestations of various religious doctrines and practices. The individuals who discussed, debated, reflected upon, codified, voted on, and ratified the First Amendment might have allowed themselves to suppose that religion is something apart from the activities of politics, economics, law, science, banking, and so on. However, if they did permit themselves to proceed in the foregoing manner, then they were merely deluding themselves and didn't properly recognize, understand, or appreciate what they were doing, or what, in a very religious, evangelical manner, they were seeking to impose on their own generation of citizens 
as well as all subsequent generation of citizens. If good government is limited government, then one needs to understand how the Constitution has the potential to provide precisely that, namely, limited government. However, to accomplish such an understanding requires a person to critically reflect on the possible meanings of a few essential terms, such as, quote-unquote, religion, quote, retained rights, end of quote, quote, reserved powers, end of quote, quote, the people, end of quote, and quote, republicanism, end of quote. And engaging in such a process of critical reflection is primarily what the present commentary has sought to do. I believe that everyone has the retained right, that is, a right which exists independently of government, to seek the truth concerning the nature of one's relationship with the universe or being or that which makes everything possible. I also believe that everyone should have the right to pursue the foregoing sort of truth in accordance with whatever manner of secular or non-secular orientation one feels best reflects that truth, as long as such a pursuit does not adversely spill over into how other people wish to pursue similar matters. Nonetheless, governments do not have the foregoing sorts of rights. Unfortunately, as I have endeavored to delineate throughout the present commentary, governments have a tendency to make laws that establish religion or prohibit the free exercise thereof, but then try to disguise the presence of such religious sentiments by using terms like government policy, politics, economics, finance, banking, rule of law, public health, and so on. One might also note how the pathology of secrecy that infects all levels of government is more often than not just a form of religion in which the values and principles that are used to prevent other people from knowing things such as the different levels of presumed classified entitlements, is little more than a way of obscuring the fact that in most cases, the underlying motive for secrecy is to hide the existence of the religious doctrine that is at the heart of such secrecy, a religious doctrine that gives expression to a perspective concerning how people, the universe, and that which makes such things possible are related and therefore a religious doctrine which is used to justify, at least in the minds and hearts of people in power, why other people ought to comply with, abide by, be willing to be oppressed and terrorized by such a sanctum sanctorum of what amounts to nothing more than a collection of theological assumptions concerning the nature of reality and how it should be engaged. In short, for more than 233 years, America has torn itself apart through a series of internecine disputes, conflicts, and wars that have been religious in nature. And for a more nuanced discussion of some of these issues, please refer to my book, The Quest for Sovereignty. These antagonisms have been carried out on battlefields of politics, economics, finance, education, banking, law, medicine, 
science, and classified secrets, but the underlying motivation for all of them has been and continues to be the desire to impose a set of religious beliefs of one kind or another on the rest of society. Let us make no mistake about the extent to which the foregoing commentary illuminates the nature of the problem that lies before us. Consider all the obfuscating, evasive rhetoric of various medical doctors and related personnel, along with specialists in such areas as infectious diseases, immunology, physiology, epidemiology, and so on. A. Who continue to claim that COVID-19 is caused by a virus, despite the fact that there are no reliable electron micrographic images or studies demonstrating its existence, nor do they have any studies which demonstrate that SARS-CoV-2 is actually infectious or which proves that SARS-CoV-2 is lethal. B. Doctors and specialists who proceed on the basis of presumptive diagnoses concerning the presence of certain kinds of presenting symptoms because data has been framed for them in a way that led them to believe that SARS-CoV-2 was responsible for such symptoms and not because anyone possessed hard, rigorous, scientific evidence which was capable of demonstrating that the underlying cause of the presenting symptoms was and is, in fact, SARS-CoV-2. C. Doctors and specialists who continue to claim that the PCR test is capable of not only detecting the unique presence of SARS-CoV-2, which it is not, there are many false positives and many reasons for the possibility of such false positives, and who continue to ignore the fact that the creator of the PCR tool, namely Nobel laureate Terry Mullis, explicitly stated that such a protocol cannot and should not be used to test for the existence of specific viruses, and therefore such doctors and specialists fail to inform the public that the results of all PCR tests involving, allegedly, SARS-CoV-2 are, to all intense purposes, utterly meaningless. D. Doctors and specialists who seem to have difficulty understanding that dying with SARS-CoV-2, even if one were to agree that it could be identified as being present, is not necessarily the same thing as dying from SARS-CoV-2, since no one has proven, as opposed to having hypotheses about, how SARS-CoV-2 actually infects organisms or purportedly goes about its lethal activity within such organisms. E. Doctors and specialists who continue to maintain that because there might be an increasing number of people who are testing positive for SARS-CoV-2 by means of tests that are not only unreliable but relatively meaningless, that this sort of an increase means that the situation is becoming more serious, despite the fact that none of those doctors and specialists can show that SARS-CoV-2, even if present, is either infectious or lethal, or who continue to not only consider the possibility that even if one were to believe that SARS-CoV-2 is responsible for COVID-19, 
that the existence of a growing difference between an increase in putative positive cases together with a decreasing number of deaths is a good thing. In other words, a possible marker for the establishment of herd immunity and not an indication that the pandemic is getting out of control. A case-demic is not the same thing as an epidemic or pandemic. F. Doctors and scientists who, under pressure from the CDC, which has a long history of lying to and misleading the public about many issues affecting public health, including, for example, its cover-up of the toxicity of Agent Orange and the catastrophic impact that chemical had on American soldiers and the Vietnamese people, as well as its attempt to hide the very real relationship between autism and vaccines, as disclosed by CDC whistleblower Dr. William Thompson, either looked the other way with respect to the doctoring of data involving alleged cause of death in cases involving presumptive diagnoses of COVID-19, or who actively participated in the altering of such data, and thereby gave the impression that COVID-19 was more deadly than available evidence actually demonstrated. G. Doctors and scientists who continue to argue on the basis of no reliable evidence that wearing masks or maintaining social distance or quarantining people who are asymptomatic and healthy benefits anyone and in fact actually downplays or ignores the substantial evidence indicating that such arbitrary practices have been shown to adversely affect people's physical, mental, emotional, and economic health. H. Doctors and scientists who continue to be unwilling to address the substantial amount of evidence which tends to indicate that the biggest problem associated with COVID-19 might not necessarily be the disease, whatever its nature might actually be, but rather involves an iotrogenic dimension in which doctors have misdiagnosed, mistreated, and misunderstood the nature of the COVID-19 phenomenon. And just one aspect of this iatrogenic aspect of things was the insistence of many doctors to put patients on certain kinds of ventilator protocols that were inconsistent with the available evidence. But nonetheless, many doctors continue to do so because the, quote, standard of care, end of quote, manual by which they operate required them to do so and not because such treatments worked. In fact, many patients were dying as a result of the ventilator protocols being used. For example, consider the testimony of Dr. Cameron Kyle Sedell and nurse Erin Olszewski in this regard. I. Doctors and scientists who, despite many conflicts of interest, are rapidly insisting that mandatory vaccines should be implemented despite the fact that such vaccines are not being developed in accordance with proper testing protocols of safety, and despite the fact that at best, the so-called science underlying the process of vaccination rests on such problematic empirical foundations that the manufacturers of those vaccines have demanded and been granted freedom from all liability concerning any injuries or death that might arise in conjunction 
with the administering of such vaccines. And despite the fact that the number of deaths being reported around the world with respect to COVID-19, whatever this phenomenon actually might be, has leveled out for a number of months now, and consequently, there is no demonstrable need for such a vaccine. J. And finally, doctors and scientists who, without rhyme or reason, and certainly without evidence, have decided that Farr's law of epidemiology is no longer applicable to instances of alleged viral infections, and as a result, such doctors and scientists have insisted that medicine and public health must now adopt a policy of total eradication concerning not only COVID-19, but as well, apparently, in relation to every other COVID-19-like phenomena that might be invented in the future by doctors and specialists who quite sadistically, it seems, seek to place human beings in a condition of continuous lockdown and unending rounds of mandatory vaccines, which cannot be proven to be either safe or effective, and irrespective of the damage that such lockdowns inflict on the lives of individuals. In the light of all of the foregoing considerations, and many other evidential items could have been mentioned in the foregoing overview, there can be no doubt that such doctors and scientists and specialists seem to be engaging in nothing short of a form of religious fanaticism in which those individuals are increasingly insisting, despite a complete absence of reliable evidence, that they have the right to impose such theological proclamations concerning medicine and public health on the rest of society. Government officials who are influenced by the foregoing sorts of individuals are using arbitrary and imagined powers of government in order to make laws respecting an establishment of religion concerning their fabricated network of ideas about such issues as infectious diseases, germs, viruses, well-being, public health, treatment, vaccination, and so on, which cannot be demonstrated to be true, but which are at best merely working hypotheses or theories that are capable of being countered by a great deal of evidence, some of which has been presented in this commentary, that runs counter to the narrative about which such hypotheses and theories are conjecturing. COVID-19 is just a variation on the game that for hundreds of years has been and continues today to be played by a rogues gallery of government leaders whose sole desire is to control and exercise power over citizens by unwarrantedly stripping those individuals of both constitutional and extra-constitutional rights and powers, and thereby subjecting citizens to all manner of tyranny oppression, and injustice. What such government leaders are doing in response to, among other aspects of life, the current COVID-19 crisis is totally at odds with the provisions of the U.S. Constitution, some of which have been outlined in the current commentary, and consequently gives expression to a very ugly form of religious charlatanism, if not terrorism. This is the essence of the problem that lies before us. COVID-19 is 9-11 in slow motion. For those who are interested, I have written and am making available for free download 
a number of books which delve more deeply into various topics that have been introduced through the five podcasts that give expression to the essence of the problem that lies before us. The books are The Quest for Sovereignty, Beyond Democracy, The People Amendments, and Sovereignty, a play in three acts. For your free copy of any or all of the foregoing books and others, just go to https colon backslash backslash www.billwhitehouse.com, all one word, backslash press P-R-E-S-S dot H-T-M. Thank you for your time, consideration, and patience. Since the beginning of time, there have been an unimaginably large number of choices that have been made by the beings that populate the universe. Relative to all the choices that have been made or could have been made, your virtually infinitesimal minute choice has induced you to be listening to the Sufi Reverberations podcast.